I decided to switch up the topic this week. I'd planned to cover nationalism, but given the number of episodes I've done both personally and with guests on freedom, I wanted to take one that responded to a number of audience questions, and particularly I've been asked a number of times about my views on the positive-negative distinction. So this is my attempt to answer that. I tweeted about it a little, and I got some interesting comments and feedback that informed this. But essentially I'm taking this on. What do I think of dividing freedom up into positive and negative? Freedom to and freedom from. And once I settled on this topic, it took me a few extra days to record, but I felt much more comfortable with it. For one, the episode I'd written on nationalism was a series of open questions, which I think would be better to take on with a guest. This episode, I really know what I think, and I could have talked for two or three times the length on this, but I wanted to just give a one-episode exposition. I don't pull any punches, I give my views fairly forcefully here, so yeah, if you think I'm wrong, please get in touch, you know, tweet at me, whatever, write me an email. As always, if you want to support the podcast, uh, sharing episodes is always a really great way to help, and if you're able to support it on a more monetary basis, we have a Patreon page. Any and all donations are always appreciated. So, apart from that, let's get into it. This episode is me taking on how do we divide up conceptions of freedom. Does positive and negative freedom make sense, or should we use something else? a really obvious fact about the world. When people use the word freedom, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether they're aware of it or not, they use the word to mean a lot of different things. And by people I don't just mean philosophers. Philosophers argue over the exact meaning of this term they have for millennia. I don't just mean politicians. Politicians invoke it in a variety of concepts and say freedom demands this particular policy. I also just mean all of us. To take a very obvious and immediate example, I was talking to someone recently about how in a particular area the customer service wasn't very good, and they noted casually that new stores are opening up, and they said something to the effect of, the free market will do its work. In other words, they were using the term to call attention to a particular, particular aspects of our social and political world and say, well, that's good, you know, particular types of economic competition are good and lead to good outcomes. They weren't like an economist, I don't even necessarily think that they were especially political, but that's the word that came out of their mouth to express those thoughts. In another context, I was talking to someone and they mentioned the Chinese government that had come up in conversation, and they said, yeah, Chinese government's taking away a lot of freedoms right now. So that's another meaning of the term that's calling our attention to particular social and political arrangements, 
and we're using that term to signal that they're not desirable. So we all do this. It's not just freedom. Lots of these big terms, lots of these what linguists call essentially contestable concepts, are used in all sorts of different ways. Different people to use them to mean different things. Also, an underrated aspect of this, the same person can often use the same word to mean different things in different contexts. Now, the immediate philosophical question, where philosophers immediately want to jump to with that, is, well, which one's right? Which is the sort of correct and final definition of the term? And we can think about it, and we can ask that question, and I've spent literally dozens of hours on this podcast thinking about that question from my conversations with Philip Pettit to Orlando Patterson to John Skorupski to my solo series, looking at the, the different claims people have made on behalf of their preferred meaning of freedom. But let's just take a step back and ask a more basic question. Given that there's all of these different ideas of freedom running around out there, how would we categorize them? What's a good way for someone who's coming at this from the beginning, right? And they were to say, look, freedom just mean, seems to mean a whole bunch of things. Say they've got to that step in their analysis, that they know it's being used to mean different things. How would you start to break this up? For instance, it's a simplification, but when it comes to political thought, we generally talk about left-wing and right-wing. Is there a left-wing and right-wing of freedom? A lot of people think so. I would tend to disagree. I think, for instance, both people on the left and people on the right can invoke the idea of freedom as democracy. I think both people on the left and people on the right can invoke the idea of freedom as individual rights. They just use it in conjunction with different ideas. Freedom is, is democracy, therefore we need more unions so we have a democratic say. Left. Freedom is democracy, therefore we need to invade Iraq. Right, right? But if the left-right one doesn't work, and hey, maybe it does, but if the left-right one doesn't work, is there a way we can, you know, carve up freedom and say, basically, it's like these two things. And there's obviously, within those two things, there'll be a bunch of, like, variants, but it essentially boils down to, is, is there a typology that we can offer to give a starting point, a way of sort of drawing a map around what's going on? And by the way, I always say this, just because you draw a map doesn't mean that there's not a place on that map that you prefer to stand. We have our preferred ideas. I certainly have my preferred ideas. But it's sometimes useful to just have the map. And there's all sorts of different maps that people have, have offered up about what freedom could mean or should mean or so on. And I want to start with probably what's going to be the attempt at creating this typology, creating this um, categorization of different types of freedom that most people will be most familiar with. So this is something that if you sort of do a political th theory sort of class, you'll usually come across this text um, by Isaiah Berlin, Two Concepts of Liberty. And 
I've been getting a lot of questions about the dichotomy he creates. So the map that he creates is between two variants of freedom, which he calls negative freedom or liberty. He uses those words synonymously, but negative freedom and positive freedom. And because I've covered different types of freedom a lot, I've got this question a lot of what do I think of the positive negative distinction? And I have to just say, just to start with, <laughs> go back and read the original texts. If I've learned one thing for prepping from this video, you need to read people in their own words, not other people's categorization of them. Because, you know, I've encountered the arguments of this essay. It was originally delivered as an oral lecture, but then it was written up into an anthology and it's proved to be very influential since then. I've been encountering it secondhand so many different times. And I think I'll, you know, I'll confess something to you. The, the last time I just sat down and read the thing, you know, front to back, and it's like a 20-minute read, it's not long. The last time I read the thing, I think I was an undergrad, and the dangers of relying on other people's accounts have just been very, very, very powerfully impressed on me. And, and what's interesting, like, I loved reading this text. Um, and, and what's interesting to me here is that this reaction I had um, is in spite of the fact that this text is for me, and remains in some ways, even after a close rereading, ground zero for the ways in which modern political theory has got freedom wrong. Rereading it, though, I found it to be beautifully effortlessly lucid, and I'm going to read you some big chunks of it so you get the feel of it, and also to typify a way of thinking about politics that's quite humble, that I very much endorse, but nonetheless I still remain convinced that it is wrong. But first let's, let, let's just take a look at this. So, one of the things I'd forgotten about this text is how grounded the entire thing is in the inevitability of disagreement. This is literally how the talk or how the essay starts. And I quote, If men never disagreed about the ends of life, if our ancestors had remained undisturbed in the Garden of Eden, the studies of which this chair of social and political theory is dedicated could scarcely have been conceived. For these studies spring from and thrive on discord. End quote. And he goes on to say how many anarchists and um, Marxists and revolutionaries or people who put their faith in pure reason imagine a future age in which political questions will become technical questions, that the moral and political problems will have been solved, and in St. Simon's famous phrase, replacing the government of persons by the administration of things. End quote. And to Berlin, this seems to him to be a fantasy, that we'll never get to the point where we agree about ends, and we just have to get to the point of, you know, how do we get to those ends? There's an innate pluralism about Berlin, which is very, very satisfying, and I think why so many people find this thinker attractive. 
The next thing I want to give Berlin some credit for, you know, before I start disagreeing with him, but I, I think there's a read of Berlin in this essay as saying basically all freedom is is either positive or negative. Freedom is either freedom to or freedom from. He himself, though, in his own words, is a little bit more cautious. He just says, quote, or, you know, of talking about the different types of freedom, quote, I propose to examine no more than two of these, but those central ones with a great deal of human history behind them, and, I dare say, still to come, end quote. So he's going to present us with a typology of freedom, recognising, as he does, that political disagreement is ongoing and eternal. We're never going to get to a resolution about political ends. And he's not even saying these are the only two ways of thinking about freedom. Just in his words, these are the central ones. So what are they? I've been getting to this for a bit. Well, this is kind of the disagreement in that I'm not sure Berlin captures this necessarily very well. Let's just get into it in his own words. So negative freedom for him is the freedom of the individual not being constrained by other individuals. And the positive sense is, I'll just quote directly from him, quote, the positive sense of the word liberty derives from the wish on the part of the individual to be his own master. I wish my life and my decisions to depend on myself and not to external forces of whatever kind. I wish to be the instrument of my own, not of other men's acts of will." End quote. So a lot of people have characterised this as freedom to, freedom from. I am free to, you know, live my own life, do my own things, be perfected as a human being, or I'm free from constraint. I'm free from being interfered with. Now, the problem is, as everyone points out, those can essentially mean the same thing, right? I am free to go shopping for groceries, or I am free from constraints that might prevent me shopping for groceries. Now, again, this is why I valued returning to the original text. Berlin himself recognises this, So, he recognises that they sound very similar. So, he says, quote, The freedom which consists in being one's own master, and the freedom which consists in not being prevented from choosing as I do by other men, may, on the face of it, seem concepts at no great logical distance from each other, no more than the negative and positive ways of saying the same thing. Yet the positive and negative notions of freedom historically developed in divergent directions, not always by logically reputable steps, until, in the end, they came into direct conflict with each other. End quote. So I'm just going to put that in my own words, and this might not necessarily be like how everyone would think about this, but what I interpret Berlin's argument here to be is he's saying, yes, these are just positive and negative ways of phrasing the same thing. Am I free to pursue X, or am I free from constraints that would prevent me from pursuing X? 
positive and negative. However, he says, these are different orientations, different directions in which you might be faced, different um, ways of, like, approaching the question that will lead to quite different outcomes. And what's really important for him, and I think what, what is actually the crux of this argument, is they'll lead to different places, not just philosophically, but practically. And ultimately, for Berlin, there's something about positive freedom that will lead to governments, authorities, societies telling people what to do, because positive freedom implicitly or, you know, whatever, carries with it a notion of what people ought to be doing. The only acceptable understanding or conception of freedom for Berlin is one which is negative, one which says people should not be constrained. That's it. That's the moral good. But the good that they pursue outside of those constraints, that's for them to choose, not us. The value of freedom must be neutral with respect to that good. Now, that is, that is, a, that is an argument, right? And I don't I don't think it's a very good argument, and I don't think it's been borne out historically. But first, let me just try and tackle this at the conceptual level. So, here's one way of understanding what negative freedom is in a really tight definition. Negative freedom is the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. The absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. And positive freedom is kind of like everything else. Why deliberate interpersonal constraints? Well, Berlin goes through this in the essay, but I'll, I'll talk through it in just sort of my own words. Basically, the constraints have to be from other people. The, the fact that, you know, I might want to jump 10 feet in the air, but can't, is a constraint of sorts, but it's not a constraint on my freedom, at least not according to this conception. There's also, I think, the word deliberate can be a useful addition. So, for instance, if I'm in a room and I think I'm locked in the room, but I'm actually, it's just my own confusion or something like, you know, one of these philosophical counterexamples where I'm constrained in part because of other people, but not really anything they intended to do then you can sort of worry, is this a constraint on my freedom? But basically, deliberate actions other people might take that interfere with your ability to take actions are constraints on freedom. So, negative freedom can be quite tightly defined as the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. Now, to Berlin's eternal credit, and far more so than many people who have defended this view after him, he recognises how unique and rare this view of freedom is. Many people... So Berlin sets up this dichotomy to come down heavily on one side of it. He is going to come down heavily on the side of negative liberty, which is the only conception he's really clearly defined. But unlike other people who view freedom as some just freestanding metaphysical claim, something that all people innately desire, like a law of bloody nature, he recognises how fleeting and how temporary it is. So he says, and I quote, 
the, of negative liberty. Quote, the doctrine is comparatively modern. There seems to be scarcely any discussion of ind individual liberty as a conscious political idea, as opposed to its actual existence in the ancient world. Condorcet had already remarked that the, that the notion of individual rights was absent from the legal conception of the Romans and the Greeks. This seems to hold equally for the Jewish, the Chinese, and all other ancient civilizations that have since come to light. The domination of this ideal has been the exception rather than the rule, even in the recent history of the West. Nor has liberty in this sense often formed a rallying cry for the great masses of mankind. The desire not to be impinged upon, to be left to oneself, has been a high mark of civilization, both on the part of individuals and communities. The sense of privacy itself, of the area of personal relationships, as something sacred in its own right, derives from a conception of freedom, which, for all its religious roots, is scarcely older in its developed state than the Renaissance or Reformation, yet its decline would mark the death of a civilization, of an entire moral outlook. End quote. Well, you'll have to say that it's beautifully put. There's a couple of points I'd want to add to that. Firstly, Berlin is absolutely right that the idea of the individual as we conceive it as being central to the idea of freedom, is very modern. Very modern, certainly. But more than that, the idea of freedom, period, doesn't really exist outside and prior to the West. Um, I think no one makes this case better than Orlando Patterson, and if you want to check that out, I have a three-part series with him where we lay out that argument in detail. Now, the move Patterson makes, which Berlin doesn't, is to say, given that this type of freedom is so unique. We might do well to ask, not what's wrong with the rest of the world that they don't accept it, but what's wrong or what's weird or what's distinctive about us that we do? Now, that question is never asked to Berlin. I think that's, that's outside of his imagination to ask that question. It takes someone like Patterson, I think, someone coming at the Western tradition from the outside to ask it. And then the other point I want to make about that is this fear that shoots through it. The decline would mark the death of a civilization. This fear of moral and civilizational collapse. That's what this argument's really about. We have to, in his words, retreat to the inner citadel. We have to maintain this purely negative conception of liberty, or terrible consequences will follow. That is sort of the argument, and that's the imagery that's evoked by the argument. Well, well why? Well, because this is a speech given in 1954. It's not even a decade after the Second World War. That is the very real existential fear that all of these post-war liberals are thinking and writing about, even when they're not thinking about it. And, and 
that's that's what they're really trying to avoid. He tells us again and again in this essay, philosophical ideas have real-world consequences. And when people come to believe ideas, they act on them. And so we have to be responsible with what ideas we are propagating. And that's what this essay becomes, and that's how it ends, as this is the light of civilization. this is the precious candle we have, and if it falls, all will be engulfed in darkness again. There is this, this Churchillian imagery throughout the entire thing, and I'll just read you the final paragraph, because it is, you, you have to admit, beautifully put, quote, it may be that the ideal of freedom to choose ends without claiming eternal validity of them, and the pluralism of values connected with this, is the only late fruit of our declining capitalist civilization, an ideal which remote ages and primitive societies have not recognized, and one which prosperity will regard with curiosity, even sympathy, but little comprehension. This may be so, but no sceptical conclusions seem to me to follow. Principles are not less sacred because their duration cannot be guaranteed. Indeed, the very desire for guarantees that our values are eternal and secure in some objective heaven is perhaps only a craving for the certainties of childhood or the absolute values of our primitive past. To realise the relative validity of one convictions, said an admirable writer of our time, and yet stand for them unflinchingly, is what distinguishes a civilised man from a barbarian. End quote. To demand more than this is perhaps a deep and incurable metaphysical need. But to allow it to determine one's practice is a symptom of an equally deep and more dangerous moral and political immaturity. End quote. Ah, be still my beating heart. That's lovely, isn't it? And what's more, I love the epistemic humility and the self-awareness with which this appeal it's couched. So what had become, oh, you know, a, a sort of cut and dry, this, this is sort of a two types of freedom, has become this rallying cry for the survival of, of, of the, the most precious ideal of our civilization, even if it's fleeting, even if it's not guaranteed to us or promised to us. And that the desire to get those guarantees is a symptom of immaturity. All of this is a way of making political arguments that long-time listeners of the show will know I'm deeply sympathetic to. So, so why do I say I disagree? In spite of it being beautifully put, in spite of it starting from a place of innate pluralism, in spite of it being epistemically humble, in spite of it not seeking guarantees from the moral and political world which they can't get, in spite of all of its wonderful framing, I still do think it's wrong. So I should try and say as clearly as I can why. First of all, let me say, I don't think 
that positive liberty, sorry, negative liberty is a crazy or insane idea. This certainly is a conception of freedom. It's one that people have held and vigorously defended. And I don't think its promotion politically is necessarily a bad thing. I disagree on two levels. Firstly, I'm not sure about the idea that the best typology of freedom is negative liberty on the one hand, and sort of everything else bunched together under the umbrella term of positive liberty on the other. I'm just not sure that that's the best way of making sense of the space. And if I were to attempt to explain to someone what are the main schools of thought that people historically have held and today do hold about what this word means, that's not necessarily what I'd go with. But my critique runs a little deeper than that, in that I think there's something... There's something on the surface sneaky about this division. And I use the word on the surface because I don't think Berlin is at all trying to hide what his normative agenda is. But I think by making negative freedom, you know, it's negative freedom and then everything else, basically. By making negative freedom the default, he's making a, a, a morally consequentialist argument that this is the one safe space, the inner citadel, where we can be safe from politically authoritarian or even totalitarian consequences of implementing other types of freedom. Now, he's very careful in his essay. He doesn't say everyone who holds a positive conception is a totalitarian, but he does say that is where that type of thinking tends to lead. And I think that's wrong as well. Now, I think with regards to the second claim, it's important to be humble and to recognise that we are not living in their time. We are not a generation that's just survived the Second World War. But I'll get back to that. Let's start with the first claim, that this is the most sensible typology of types of freedom to begin with. Well, like I say, negative freedom is a clearly defined tradition in liberty. Personally, I've always been trained to think about it as absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. That's a clearly confined, defined conception. Positive liberty is not a clearly defined conception. The best I can really make of it is as an umbrella term to cover a number of different conceptions. And that's sort of how Berlin uses it. He looks at, like, stoic freedom. He looks at, like, idealistic freedom. Idealistic as, like, teleological converging on an idea, the idea that there is a sort of purpose to human life. Um, which are all sort of very philosophically types of ideas. So broadly, if you were to try and characterise it, positive freedom to Berlin involves the freedom to pursue some sort of moral good out of your life. The problem is, even that as a very broad and sort of overarching characterisation doesn't 
accurately describe, it doesn't gel with, a number of the non-negative conceptions of liberty that we have. So I'll mention just two here. Um, the idea of republican freedom, and the idea of freedom as autonomy. So I spent a lot of time both with Philip Pettit interviewing him and talking about some of his ideas in and Quentin Skinner's ideas in my Machiavelli series. But Quentin Skinner, in one of his lectures, says the third, calls it the third concept of liberty. In other words, he's saying this is neither really positive or negative, and in a sense, he's right, it doesn't fit neatly within it. He says freedom is non-domination, so one of the questions I got on Twitter about this is what's the dif difference between domination and constraint? They seem to be the same thing. Well, constraint is if there's someone actively preventing you from doing something. Domination is if there's someone who has the power to so prevent you. So Philip Pettit gives the example of, you know, in Victorian times, the husband had all of the legal and social power over the wife. Complete control of the finances, basically owned her. But say you were a wife who had an absolutely doting husband, you know, would buy you all the dresses that you wanted, would take you to the theatre, anything you desired, and say also, you know, presumably quite an affluent husband who could do all this. Are you free? Well, you're not being constrained. There's no deliberate interpersonal constraint here. The husband dotes on you. Yet, nonetheless, the Republican would want to say there is some meaningful sense in which you're not free, because you only have that non-constraint as long as the husband allows it. So you're not constrained, but you are dominated. And you can apply that idea of domination to any number of things. And in the history of political thought, it tends to be linked to ideas of democracy, of a participatory political arena. Philip Pettit more recently has linked it to a number of left-wing ideas about economic justice and democracy in the workplace, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not even going to get into, like, is that right? You know, should we think about it as non-constraint, or should we think about it as non-domination? I merely point out that they're different. This idea of freedom as non-domination, linked as it tends to be to participatory politics, self-rule, a comparatively egalitarian society, that's a vision of the world that definitely isn't negative freedom. It's distinct from that, clearly, but it doesn't easily fall into Berlin's categorization of positive either. Let me do another one, freedom as autonomy. So Berlin approvingly cites John Stuart Mill a number of times, but, and to Berlin's credit, correctly recognizes that what Mill is offering us is not a purely negative conception of freedom. There's a negative aspect to it. The individual wants to be left alone, according to Mill. But there's also a positive aspect that an individual, you could have two individuals who are both left alone, but one of them who, say, has access to learning and education and is free to form his own life plan based on his own informed reasons, is more free, according to Mill, than one who is merely left alone. So, while Berlin links the idea of freedom 
to individuality and to non-constraint, and then kind of just draws a line, Mill, Mill has those concepts as well, but also adds this element of autonomy or development on the societal level, progress. And you can think of a number of examples that might flesh that out. So consider, I walk down to the store to buy a particular item. Let's just say I have the money for the item, no one interferes with me. Let's say we're in a libertarian paradise where there's no sales tax on the item. There are no deliberate interpersonal constraints stopping me from buying that item. Am I free? Well, according to negative liberty, yes. Now let's just say that item is a packet of cigarettes, or let's make it even more visceral, um, some heroin. I, I say some heroin, you can tell how, you know, streetwise I am, I don't even know what the unit of heroin is that one would purchase. But, um, a quart of heroin, my good sir, I don't. But anyway, um, Am I, am I free in that sense? And say I'm buying it because I have a crippling addiction that I wish I could overcome. But I'm still buying it. Am I free? Well, I'm always sceptical as using your intuitions as a final proof. But if you're finding that counterintuitive, that if you're feeling that there is some sense in which I am not free, then what your intuitions are telling you is there is another concept of freedom there. Now, note again, that doesn't obviously have anything to do with negative freedom. It doesn't obviously have anything to do with Republican freedom. You could be non-dominated and buying heroin, right? But nonetheless, that, 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 that is a sort of more positive element of it, right? But again, it doesn't fit neatly with the idea of positive freedom, because positive freedom to Berlin is the idea that there is a good, that there is sort of a teleological end to human life. Whereas for, for John Stuart Mill and for many liberal thinkers after him, there isn't. The idea of self-development, self-discovery, autonomy, the drawing out of the capacities of the human being, that is the good. The good is found it's not, it's not just the destination, it's the journey. So again, that's a definition of freedom that Berlin himself recognises doesn't fit neatly into his typology. It has negative and positive elements. So what are we to make of that? So that's my first point here, is at a conceptual level, I don't think this makes a lot of sense. Yes, you can make the division between negative liberty and everything else. But that is all that division is. I could equally well say there's Republican liberty and everything else. Or there's freedom of, as autonomy and everything else. Or there's stoic freedom and everything else. Why does the and everything else line, if we can call it that, get drawn around negative liberty? It, it seems a bit sneaky. So, you know, you ask me, okay, well, that's your critique, how would you do better? As someone who takes the idea of essential contestability really seriously, I would just say, you know, you can define these traditions really easily by what concepts are placed near to the concept of freedom, right? So, you know, negative liberty is individuality and non-constraint. 
those are the big concepts near to it. Um, freedom, uh, Republican freedom, is freedom as non-domination. That's the big concept. Freedom as autonomy is autonomy. Libertarian freedom is like negative-ish, but you could also add in the concept of property as a sort of central one. You also could have and do have historically um, far-right fascist concepts of freedom, to which the idea of the nation, the racial group, would be the bearer of freedom. Now, that's not, to be clear, to morally approve of those. It's simply to note that these are beliefs about freedom that human beings have held, and still do hold today, for that matter. Now, some people will say that's too complex, and I, I got this when I did a Twitter thread about it, like, well, at least Berlin's is simple. <laughs> I, got, I, I get this when I say the left-right spectrum doesn't adequately capture ideological diversity. Um, people always say, well, your way of explaining it's too complicated. I don't think so. Listen, I can do it really, really easily, right? Freedom means many things. The different things it can mean are cashed out by the basic concepts it's associated with. For instance, many people say freedom is about individual non-constraint. Many people say it's about non-domination. Many people say it's about autonomy. Many people link it directly to democracy. These are some of the basic ways that people have thought about freedom. So if there was a bit of a tone of voice in that. Um, but I do resent the implication that there's something elitist about my views because I'm accurately describing, or sorry, more accurately, I should say, describing the beliefs that real human beings, not professional philosophers or political thinkers, but ordinary people in their ordinary lives, have held and do hold about freedom as opposed to trying to impose some abstract category on it. And it's worse than just the left-right political spectrum, because at least the left-right political spectrum is something that's generally recognised by people. It's a common frame of reference, even if there's conceptual mistakes underlying it. Whereas with this, no one knows what positive and negative means, which goes to my next point, is that it's actually really hard to explain what positive and negative mean, and I felt like I kind of waffled in doing it, and I feel like Berlin rather beautifully waffles, admittedly, but waffles nonetheless in explaining what he means by it, for the simple reason that, like I say again, there is a tight definition of negative liberty, there isn't of positive, and so you have to talk in generalities, you have to talk about ways of approaching the world that tend to lead to certain results. It's actually quite complicated to explain what you mean by positive and negative liberty, so it doesn't even have the virtue of clarity. I think, it, you know, look, I can do it in a sentence. Here's some basic types of freedom. Freedom associated with individual non-constraint, type 1. Freedom associated with autonomy, type 2. Freedom associated with non-domination and democracy, type 3. Freedom associated with the racial or national group, type 4. And, you know, you, you can add the, the, you can go down the list into the more obscure ones. But I would say those, are, oh, I'll add another big one, freedom associated with the market. That's a big one. And I won't get into this argument here, 
but I would argue is in some conceptual sense distinct from negative liberty, even though its defenders never recognise it as such. So th that's not a hard way of separating out the space. If you want to try and get it to a single binary, I don't know if I can do it as a binary, but you could say, what do these conceptions of freedom imply about the individual and about social groups? That's, I think, like, if you wanted to get it at its simplest, you could say something like that. But I would just say freedom is an essentially contestable concept. Its meaning is supplied by other essentially contestable concepts. And that's the best basis for the categorization. Now, that sort of leads on to the second point. And I think what's interesting here is when you disagree about political theory, I think it's less interesting actually to say what you disagree on and more interesting to say why you disagree. What argumentative steps am I making that are different from Berlin's that lead me to different conclusions? And then the debate can become less about you're right and I'm wrong and more about just like what are the different paths that we're walking down. So here's, here's the first one as a methodological difference. Berlin, it seems to me in this essay, is looking at philosophers. He's creating a typology of the way philosophers have thought about freedom. I'm creating a typology of the way people have thought about freedom. So while he spends a great deal of time on self-realization and stoic freedom, I just don't know that these are conceptions that have really penetrated mass populations in any meaningful way. Whereas, freedom as autonomy has. Freedom as non-domination has as well. Even though, um, even though its defenders often view republicanism as a dead creed in need of um, resurrection, it's actually something that's fairly intuitive to most people, as evidenced by the fact that you can use examples like the one I took from Philip Pettit. Oh, and by the way, if you want some quantitative proof of that, you can look at a research paper called uh, Ideology and Mass Populations in the Journal of Political Ideologies by a young, charming, and handsome scholar called Buckle, I joke, um, where I provide evidence, I survey people on it, and I provide evidence to that end, that actually if you just ask people, you know, which of these statements about freedom do you think is right, people will gravitate towards autonomy, they'll gravitate towards non-domination, and they'll gravitate towards freedom and the market. Um, and those things will act as important predictors of what their political views are. Whether or not people endorse negative freedom has no predictive value as to what their political views are. So that's a digression. But I think that's actually where I sort of diverge from Berlin in this, in that his typology, even then I'm not 100% sold on it, but I think his typology makes more sense in the realm of philosophers. Mine is much more geared towards a sort of theory-informed political science. Um, and again, like, look, look at my paper on this, you can go survey people on this. Um, and 
that's, I think, one reason why I pull away from his. The other, and this is a very simple point, is self-definition matters. So take by analogy political ideologies. You know, you might use a particular term like liberalism or libertarianism to define a particular set of ideas. Now, when you try and impose that category on reality, you'll find that not everyone who holds that set of ideas self-consciously calls themselves a libertarian, you know. Or, like, say, I say, these are the family resemblances of conservatism. It might be that not all conservatives hold them. It might be that some people who call themselves conservatives are nothing like what I've described it as. But there should be a loose coherence, right? If what I'm describing as conservatives doesn't at all cohere to what people who self-describe as conservatives, then then surely that's a sign that I've gone wrong somewhere. Now, there'll always be exceptions. So when I did my history of libertarianism, you know, there are people who use the word libertarian to mean, like, there's people who understand it to mean, like, wanting a socialist utopia, and, like, my definition of that term will exclude those people. So it's not perfect, but my definition of the term of a system of political thought that prioritises the individual, that prioritises property rights, that prioritises non-constraint and the free market, matches most people most of the time who call themselves libertarians. And it matches what critics of libertarianism imagine themselves to be attacking. So, the definition I supply of that term has some congruence, if not an exact coherence, with how the world is actually with how the word is actually used in the world. Now, my problem with the positive-negative distinction is that it has none of that, right? Like, you know, you can take my typology, and I say, okay, there's this Republican tradition of freedom as non-domination. And there'll be a bunch of people who put their hands up and say, yeah, that's me. Now, granted, that group will be smaller than for a political ideology. Like, the number of people who subscribe to a political ideology is bigger than the number of people who have a self-conscious conception of a particular component of that ideology, in this case, freedom. But there's a distinct and recognisable train of thought of people who self-identify as Republicans in the terms that I've described them, that that makes sense, right? And it won't be exact. There'll be some people who call themselves Republicans who don't match the definition and so on. Same with freedom of as autonomy. And yes, negative freedom. There's, there's plenty of people who will self-identify as having a negative conception of freedom. And you know, they'll mean different things by it, but usually it'll roughly deal with non-constraint in the individual, right? I, I don't know that there's anyone who really holds up their hand other than some obscure philosophers and says that they have a positive view of freedom in the way that Berlin describes it. It just seems like an abstract category for me. So those are sort of my methodological differences. I'm interested less in, you know, I agree with Berlin 
that philosophers can change the world, but they change the world in its sort of interesting and complicated interaction with politicians and mass populations. I'm not just interested in the philosophical, that's the first difference. The next difference is I think it's not the only thing we should look at, certainly, but I think we have to take some regard to self-definition. We have to take some regard to the traditions of thought that people self-identify as being a part of, for instance, republicanism, and that there is this big category of thought that self-consciously doesn't identify with either positive or negative should give us pause on that dichotomy, no? But there's a deeper point underneath all of this, and this is what I want to get to, is Berlin, at his heart, he... He doesn't phrase this. This ultimately doesn't become to him about how do we divide up these concepts, how do we measure what real people actually believe. These are questions I'm asking. This actually isn't what Berlin's asking. I think what Berlin is asking at the heart of this is what is most valuable about civilization? What was worth fighting the Second World War for? And how do we preserve it? And to him, his dichotomy isn't some political science thing of, you know, this percentage of people believe in freedom of autonomy versus this percentage of people, or philosophers for that matter, believe in, you know, this other conception. That that's It starts with it seeming like that's what he's trying to do, but in the end it's not. It's about a moral vision of the world, and one which is beautifully articulated, like, Berlin's phrasing is better than mine, right? Um, but, but it's wrong, and it's obviously wrong to my mind. This idea that a pure negative freedom is sort of the, the best hope for liberal civilization, and that positive freedom tends to lead to telling, because it has this idea of what people ought to do, ends up leading us to telling people what they should do, to enforcing that, to political authoritarianism, to totalitarianism. So this this morally consequentialist argument that underpins it all, which it essentially boils down to ideas matter, and positive ideas of freedom, if not logically imply, tend to orientate people towards authoritarianism, whereas negative ideas of freedom not necessarily logically imply, but tend to orientate people towards um, pluralism and liberalism and minimal, minimal, you know, restraint-free government. This is surely wrong, and I said earlier, you know, we've got to be really careful in that these people survived the Second World War, and, you know, we didn't. And I take that caution in mind, and I also take Berlin's caution in mind that these ideas, you know, are time and place dependent. But I'll go further than him, in that the consequences political ideas produce are also time and place dependent. That a particular conception of liberty exists, what consequences that have will depend on how people view other political conceptions. It'll depend on what political ideologies are dominant at the time, because those other conceptions are 
how people will supply meaning to that term. And so this real argument that you have to have this tight, you know, interpersonal non-constraint definition of freedom has just not been borne out by history. So he was writing in England in a more liberal age, an age that had just embraced socialist policies like the National Health Service and so on, but it would not be long, and I think would be within Berlin's lifetime, before a conservative counter-revolution would demolish all of that. And one of the central weapons, perhaps the big shield, you could think of it, that that conservative ideology held up, was a libertarian idea of freedom. Now, we can get into the fine points about, like, you know, is a libertarian ideal exactly the same as a negative ideal? I'd actually sort of maintain that they're not. But nonetheless, the people who were talking most loudly about freedom, and specifically individual freedom, and understanding that individual freedom as non-constraint, were not just conservatives, but people who allowed some outright fascistic things to happen. Look at the use of the word freedom in our world today. The people who are talking loudest about individual freedom are the people on the other side of a debate about concentration camps in America. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole are immigrant detention centres correctly called concentration camps that um, AOC has promoted, but that we have things that look strikingly reminiscent of certain things in history, you know, albeit not the, not the exact moral equivalents, and could plausibly be called concentration camps, should be troubling. There are aspects of the promotion of political violence, of the overt appeals to racism, of the overt misogyny, of the attacks on the free press of the Trump administration, that are fascistic. That's not to say Trump is in every respect the morally consequentialist equivalent of Hitler. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's elements of his political ideology which have real-world consequences that it is not misleading to call fascistic. Well, where is freedom in this fight? Freedom, people who talk and use the phrase individualist freedom, people who use the phrase of being left alone and get the government off my back, y'all, You've got to love my accents on this show, right? They line up overwhelmingly on one side, and it is not the side of resistance to fascism. I talked about the conservative revolutions. I think there's an idealism about Reagan that we've all bought into, that even the left doesn't see his darker side. But is it just me, or was there something fascistic about the neglect of the AIDS crisis? You know, as a moral consequentialist, I don't put as big a gap between failure to act and intentional harm as some of y'all do. But even accepting a gap, the scale of evil that was self-consciously allowed to happen, that, that so much of it could have been prevented with a little bit of research, a little bit of public inter- education, a little bit of active intervention... You know, I've been watching some documentaries and um, trying to acquaint myself with um, 
the you know the life of many gay and trans people in the 70s and 80s and so on and the scale of the suffering just the real physical suffering of people neglected and you know trigger warning here um their their flesh physically decaying and rotting off their bodies in the most excruciating of pain alone often abandoned by family and friends for a disease that we now know is preventable and increasingly treatable like obviously it's a terrible thing but it's no longer the death sentence that it used to be if that had been prioritized and taken seriously if the government had even made any effort to educate people about it how many people could be alive today and those people were allowed to die because of an ideology that saw them as less than human you know they're gay they're the f word all of that right and i can't help but feeling the whole thing wasn't one of neglect it wasn't what happened was morally grotesque and it strikes me in many ways the dehumanization of a class of people albeit you know on the case of sexual orientation or gender identity not on the basis of race but it strikes me that there was something fascistic there the idea that it is no bad thing indeed in some quarters it is something to be celebrated if those people die painfully and alone now why did i go into all of that well again where were the people who talked about individual freedom as non-constraint at that time they were overwhelmingly on one side and it wasn't on the side of the victims of fascistic ideas now i can hear you say that doesn't mean individual liberty has to mean that you can imagine you know someone talking about individual liberty being constrained you know, you, you, you can imagine a, a left-wing critique of Reaganism or of Trump or of Thatcher or something that, that had a negative idea of freedom. That's not logically incompatible. That's fine. That's a valid point. I'm not saying you have to be a fascist if you have a negative idea of freedom. I'm saying the negative idea of freedom has been okay with fascism for many of the people who held it. And I'm just approaching Berlin's argument on its own terms here you know berlin doesn't say and he's quite explicit that this isn't what he's saying this is you know the necessary and sufficient conditions of a way of thinking about freedom that logically imply political authoritarianism he's saying it's a way of thinking about the world that tends to lead to that well i don't know about lead to you know i don't know what's the you know which way round this goes, what's the horse and what's the cart, whatever the metaphor is. But it does seem to me that some types of negative freedom, particularly a sort of libertarian type that has not just individuality and non-constraint, but also ideas of the market, rational self-interest, that sort of idea has not just been okay with, it's been an active ally in some of the nastier and more fascistic impulses that, that we've seen in our society since Berlin's time. And it's actually been other ways of thinking about freedom. Freedom as autonomy, freedom as non-domination. And I know they're not the same thing. 
that have been challenging to that. It's not the case that freedom, libertarian freedom, has been the only type of freedom to ally itself with fascism. Fascism can have its own conception of freedom, an older, darker blood and soil definition of freedom. But it just doesn't seem to have been borne out to me historically that this is a way of orientating yourself to the world that keep that not not keeps you safe that's the wrong word but that tends to lead you away from political authoritarianism and just one more example look at foreign policy you know in terms of foreign policy reagan particularly was an enemy i think of many forms of freedom in that democratic governments like allende in chile were overthrown and some fucking fascist disgusting human being in terms of Pinochet was put in power fully with the contrivance of the US government under the excuse of anti-communism but subverting a a, a functioning representative democracy to install a fascist is not anti-communism it is just moral and practical complicity with fascism and the people who talked the loudest about individual freedom the people who talked about free markets, the people who talked about the value of the individual, where were they in that specific instance? They were not only sitting on the sidelines not critiquing it, they were cheering it, both hands in the air. They were getting involved and actively supporting it. Not to say everyone who held a negative conception of freedom, but many of them were. And again, maybe there's a bit of work here to do passing a sort of liberal from a libertarian instance of freedom. But I'm interested in what these ideas do. If the main meanings to you of freedom are individuality, non-constraint, and, you know, let's throw property in there because Berlin specifically goes out of his way in that essay to say, your freedom is not affected by you not having property. If you're starving, it means you're starving. It doesn't mean you're not free. It means, in his pleasantly cynical phrase, you lack the ability to enjoy that freedom. So this argument has not been borne out by history, nor, let us be really clear on this, was it even obvious from Berlin's time? You know, that's obvious to us now, although even now it's not commonly accepted. But, you know... Libertarian negative freedom was at best a sort of absentee role in World War II. The conceptions of freedom that were active in animating, you know, the quote-unquote good guys in World War II were not some nicely passed liberal theory about individual non-constraint. It was an active nationalism, a belief in representative democracy, perhaps, a sort of republican idea of freedom, as well as just all the causes that lead men and women to fight in any war. You know, people like Hayek from Mises self-consciously describe their time during the war as one of exile. 
the conception of freedom that has most historic claim to winning the Second World War is that of freedom as autonomy, that of the freedom that's found in the Beveridge Report, freedom from want, a, a, a conception of freedom that includes choice, that situates the individual at the heart of social networks, that says to be free you need a job, you need to be a functioning member of society. Poor, hungry men are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. That's an FDR quote. The, 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 the type of freedom, and I, you know, please go back and look at my libertarianism series part four for this, but the type of freedom John Maynard Keynes said that must steer the, the, the world of civilization through from the worlds of reaction and revolution and find that middle path between a decaying old regime that will lead to, to just corruption and dissatisfaction eventually ruin fascism maybe and the, the horrors of stalinism on the other what is that road and the road is that of the welfare state the limited state the compromise between the market and the government that's what allowed the world to come through that time when it could easily have fallen off Libertarian freedom has never been there in the fight against fascism. Now, again, I realise I'm sort of running together libertarian and negative freedom in a way that might not quite be right. But pre freedom as pure individual rights and non-constraint has, has a decidedly iffy record. And it did at the time. So why? And this is what bugs me. This is what bugs me about Berlin. It's so beautifully put. It's so historically sensitive. It's so self-aware of the limitations of what he's asserting. So why do we continue to buy this idea that the conception of freedom that did very little work in opposing fascism in the Second World War, and when fascism has reared its ugly head, has often been actively in support of it, that that is our only defence of it, and that any other conception of freedom will necess is necessarily fascistic. You hear this on the political right all the time, that as soon as you have, quote, socialism in their words will be Venezuela, the idea that as soon as you have a welfare state, you'll become politically authoritarian. As soon as you have a government that has some sort of guiding moral vision... That'll necessarily lead to fascism. It's just not true, and it's obviously not true. And I understand why political hacks on the right feel the need to espouse it. I don't know why philosophers who aren't faced with those incentives feel the need to go along with it. Nor is it even obviously the case to me that negative freedom does represent some sort of neutral, some sort of lack of passing judgments, lack of telling people how to live. It absolutely doesn't. Negative freedom, as Berlin describes it, set, makes a number of moral judgments. It says that the individual is the constitutive unit of society. You might agree with that or disagree, but that is a moral judgment. It says individuals have the potential to be harmed by others, and it's desirable that they be left alone by others. That is a moral judgment. The whole thing is shot through with moral judgments, and yet this gets the privileged position of carving out one half of the aisle for itself 
it's this versus everything else, and that this is the only safe ground that doesn't lead to political authoritarianism. I don't know. Like, I, I, I found this text amazing when I first came to it, and after letting it all settle in, the fact that it's so sensitively put makes it all the more frustrating to me. So, in conclusion, freedom means many things to many different people. And in creating our typologies, we should follow Wittgenstein's adage. Don't think, but look. Let's start by looking at what people do believe and what they have believed. And let's also look not at what we imagine that those beliefs might lead to, but what they actually have led to, what they actually have been paired with, what have been their actual results.